for prayer. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kachena, b'mitzvotah, v'tzivana la'asok, v'dibrei Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to immerse ourselves in Torah. And uh, Aaron, thank you for one thing. For all the mothers out there, happy Mother's Day coming up. And if you hadn't mentioned it, I probably would be in trouble. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I still have time, don't I? Okay, well, we've come to the last portion in Leviticus. And it really covers a wide range of things if you had a chance to take a look at it. it covers the value of land, the value of self, the value of others, how to conduct business, farming, discusses freedom, behavior, sin, confession, repentance, or redemption. Now, a lot of Leviticus, as you read through these last, uh, this last portions, kind of builds on itself. There's something in each portion which supports the next, or each verse as we move through, each idea, maybe I should say. I decided I wanted to focus on uh, two questions, two things I'd like to ask. And the one is, for all of you, the focus of your life, the focus of your life as far as it builds towards your relationship towards our God. What is your foundational way of approaching this? Is it aimed at pleasing God or trusting God? I know those are intertwined, so what I'm asking you is what is your basic entering argument? Trust or pleasing? I think that's important. And of course, the harder part of this is going to be doing the things that God wants us to do. But it's important to know which way we approach because I think one of those paths can end missing the mark, whereas the other path almost assures success. That's question number one I want to address. Question number two is, what does it mean to walk in the scriptures? Specifically, what does it mean to walk in the scriptures as it is used today? How the word walk is translated today. Now, this is important, and you may not see the connection at first, but I hope you will, that this reaches all the way back to Genesis and Adam and Eve, this idea of walking. How do we do this? Well, that's where we're going to go today. So how do we address this? Well, first, we need a little bit of background, which we are given right up front uh, as you um, get into the readings this week. The scriptures this week talk about a sabbatical rest for the land every seven years, and then a week of sabbaticals, seven times seven, 49, the 50th year is the Jubilee year. Cycles are important, but you might be wondering why. We have any farmers here? I don't see a lot of hands, so when you read that, you might have went, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But the cycles are important today, and they're tied to a number of things that relate to how we will approach God and how we learn to approach God. The cycle does more than just mark a time of renewal. It also marks a, marks a time to celebrate, to support freedom and liberty in the context of a land and a people who belong to God. And this is an important perspective because most of the time we think of these things 
on a personal level, how it relates to us. How I am treated only matters to me. But in this case, we have two examples that we run down, or two paths that are run down in the scriptures, and one of them is a larger view. But there is another layer to this cycle that may not be readily apparent, and that highlights the fact that there is a rhythm to our lives as well. Not just the land and the property that God has given us to be stewards of. God knows that the land needs time to rest, replenish itself, to support future demands on it, but he tells those people who till the land not to till. So there is another aspect to this, and that is us. We are part of that rhythm that calls for periodic frames of space in our lives for reflection and renewal that will support our future demands or the future demands on our faith. So the Parshas this week, uh, Bahar on the mountain and Bi Chukotai or Te by my statutes. They cover Leviticus 25, 1 through 27, 34, Jeremiah 16, 19 through 17, 14, and 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24, Galatians 6, 7 through 10, and 1 John 1. The readings this week may be a little bit difficult to pull out the relevance for today, but relevance is very important, and I'll get into that a little bit later. It is, however, important for us as we read through the scripture to look for relevance. If you've listened to any of my Torah teasers or any of the other message I've given before, it is one of the primary aims that I always look for. What makes the scriptures written so long relevant for us today? And I think a careful reading today highlights a process. Yes, a process. A process that we are led through in the scriptures, if you read them, twice. Once, as I said, or as I said, is the bigger picture and uh, a framing on a larger scale and one more personal. But in both cases, an individual, in a sense, is going through a series of steps that are leading towards a bad end. They're not going the right way. We see the steps in all the steps, even though he's not, or this person is not going in the right way, that at each one of the steps and each decision he makes, there is the offer or the availability of freedom and redemption. So there is a path to this, and of course we know that we have that path. But it shows us, it goes through the process of what the results are if we choose not to take that offer of freedom and redemption. So one of the important things to take away from the reading today is that an ending, I don't want this to sound too harsh, but there is an ending to our time here on earth. Our ending time will come. The offer and free of freedom and redemption has an end point too, as I understand it. At some point, our names are either written in the book of life or never will be. Now we are shown this sequence of events leading to an end that we really don't want anyone to go towards. And it's important to realize that we don't arrive at these bad endpoints overnight, not usually, where we find ourselves in relationship to others and with our God 
is usually the result of a series of decisions we've made over time, that the series of decisions we're responsible for, that we are responsible for, and that we have made. You have heard me talk before about the idea of a chain of events. But as a reminder, we are always building a chain of events. It doesn't matter whether you think you are or are not. It doesn't matter whether you want to or not. Every decision, decision by decision, is a link in this chain of events that is our lives. Now, this is usually easily apparent in hindsight, but often missed or not even considered in our daily life as we react to the moment. The future seems a mystery to us. But I read once long ago that the answer or the secret to our future is really found in our daily routine, which goes back to the idea that every day we make a chain or a link in this chain that is our life. So we should measure where we are going carefully, where we know our faith wants to lead us, and if we're not going the right way, make corrections. So in the chain of events in the readings, as we look at Leviticus 25, it sets up a process that supports observance of the Jubilee League. Jubilee year, excuse me. It tells us to do a number of things, but basically I'll put it all under the heading of giving others that are less fortunate or who make mistakes access to redeem themselves, to repent, and move back towards the freedom of faith. That if in your freedom you observe and perform God's decrees and ordinances, the scriptures tell us this week, this chain of events will go in the right direction that we were supposed to be going, and God is helping us with that. And with each link required, each link required in this performance, this chain leads to security. As we continue to read into verses 25, we begin to move down a different path. Number one was the bigger picture, and one is personal. In the first bigger picture, we see a person, like I said, as he moves down a different path than the right one, he sells his ancestral heritage, which we know, if you've read the scriptures, you cannot do. Now we're being viewed not as a personal, his personal choice, but his personal choice with the aspect of a whole people. He's not in a position to do that, or sell his house, or himself. You cannot sell what you do not own. And if we see someone going down this path, we are supposed to help them have a way back because we are doing this in the terms of being in a community. There is direction here for us as a community of believers. The lesson here is that in a community of believers, in the end, the land and ourselves belong to God. And we need to view ourselves in our lives that way in all the things that we do. His Sabbaths are to be observed, his decrees and commandments, and none of us wants to move away from God, so we have to often check our decisions. God's design is to place his sanctuary among us. He tells us that. But if we continue through Leviticus 26 and continue to reject God's direction, he tells us in verse 19, he will break the pride of our might. Terrible outcome. But this is not revenge, and it is not punishment. All of these escalating terrible outcomes are to drive us back to repent, to reevaluate our lives. If we continue to resist, the negative, uh, the negative outcomes continue to increase in severity, 
And this process is highlighted on through chapter 26. If we continue building this chain of events, the links that we fashion daily, with each decision where we do not heed God's direction, like I said, it will not end well. But even so, despite all this, we read in verse 44 that God will not reject us to the point of obliteration as a believing people. Again, in the context of people. We just heard that tomorrow marks the 75th anniversary of Israel. 2,000 years, no country. Now they are a sovereign state, and 75 years tomorrow is the anniversary of that time. Amazingly. But we're treated that way not because we deserve it, but because God is God. The Alpha, the Omega, perfect, unchanging, and as we repeat every Shabbat, the God who says and does. And the covenant was made with the ancients. Can't be broken by our failings. So that was a lot. I have written in my notes, let everybody take a breath. Okay, because I just piled a lot of stuff on there, and some of it was kind of a little, maybe on the harsh side, sounds a little on the harsh side. But we needed that understanding of how we approach and how we need this rest, and so we consider God to now address the questions that I talked about. And that part, really, if you read it, is impressive, I think, because you should hear an echo in there, an echo that says to repent, redemption available, and the promise of not being rejected. It is familiar to us, is it not? Today we are washed clean by accepting the blood of Yeshua. It doesn't make us perfect, but God has made a new covenant with us, and just like the old, it stands not because we deserve it or have earned it, but because God is God, the God who says and does, and although we will fall short, and we most definitely will fall short, we are blessed if we feel the correction that is given us, and we turn back to the right path. We repent, and we are then redeemed by the blood of Yeshua, and not rejected. Like I said, that was a lot all in one piece, maybe a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, but I needed that backdrop to continue on. Because now I'm back on the question that I asked you in the beginning. Should our foundational focus in our spiritual life be on pleasing God or trusting God? These things are intertwined, and I know they are. But I'm talking about your endpoint. What is the basis of your faith as you move forward, as you work on your faith, you work on this relationship with God? If the primary, if the primary aim in a spiritual life is to please God, then I think that path may be fraught with danger. Not only will you have moments of failure where you know you have not done something pleasing to God, but this path can be a slippery slope into arrogance, assessing others' performance, or despair in knowing that you continually fall short. And I think my personal opinion is this idea of pleasing God is what led many down the path of legalism. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But the ancients didn't have the Bible before the time of Moses. Their relationship with God was built on trust. Once that shifted to pleasing God, as some did with the Torah, like I said, it can lead to legalism. And I think that has happened. I mean, I have the rules, right? I know what I'm supposed to do, A, B, C, D. Well, if I make the effort, I expect God to reward it, right? So if I carefully follow 
the rules, and now I focus on them, that should be pleasing to God, right? And if I'm pleasing God, then I require God to be pleased with me, don't I? So we find ourselves in a position of life spent on a foundational effort of trying to please God, but knowing that we will fall short. After all, we are imperfect. It's in our nature. That process, though, can lead to frustration, resentment, and distrust. Why are you treating this way, me this way, God? I didn't deserve it. Why is life unfair? It may well move us away from what Yeshua tells us is the first, most important commandment, to love God with all your heart. Now, we are talking here about God. And what I said may have been, or what I've just said may have produced a question in your mind. You may be thinking, wait a minute, Aaron, I am going to live my life with an effort to please God. I think it's the right way to go. And maybe what I just said or how I laid that out doesn't quite make it my point clear. So I decided to lighten it up a little bit. Uh, that's your cue to know that what I say next is supposed to be sort of tongue-in-cheek, a little bit funny. So, <laughs> so I'm going to use a different example. And uh, many of you, I hope, can relate to this. I have, or I would like to, want to keep my wife pleased. How many of you ever watched a number of Korean dramas? Anybody? Couple Korean dramas? You got them? Okay. How about horror dramas? Nah? Okay, well, I've watched some horror dramas. Now, there's two things you'll kind of notice. First, and I don't know why, but almost all the ghosts, in fact, all the ghosts I've ever seen are female. Apparently, they're the only spirits that come back to ruin someone's life who's still here. Now, don't blame me. I don't write this stuff. I just watch it. The second thing you'll notice is that in Korea, the expression of emotion, like love, is often demonstrated in the preparation and the sharing of a meal. And this is where it becomes worrisome for me. Because the emotions like Anger and hate are also, in the horror movies, demonstrated by preparation of a meal. And it's these motivated me to want to keep my wife, who you know is Korean, pleased because I would rather be served dinner than served as dinner. And if you watch a couple Korean horror movies, you'll know what I'm talking about. So yes, I want to please my wife. And she's sitting over there shaking her head so, <laughs> but living in a relationship based on reciprocated love contingent upon pleasing my wife is going to be a problem. I know that you who know me will find this hard to understand, but I am not always the pleasant, engaging person you see. Sometimes I get a little off kilter. Sometimes I overlook something that's important to my wife. Sometimes I leave my socks in the TV room. And apparently, it is possible for me to breathe too loudly when I sleep. <laughs> so you can see where I'm going with this, I hope. There is no way I can always please my wife. Put another way, I'm going to irritate her from time to time. I will fail. 
Now, when I don't, and I do everything right, it does happen on a blue moon, then I will feel like, yeah, you owe me something, right? Haven't I done a good job? You owe me something. But if our relationship is contingent on my pleasing her always, when I do fail, then what? Rejection? Judgment? That's a tough way to live. So what about the other way, trusting? Well, let us go back to our approach to God for a second. We use trust as our approach, or at least our foundation. That's our foundation of choice. We choose to make our primary aim point to trust in God. That changes things. We have his statutes, his decrees, his commandments, his teachings, and his laws. Yeshua came down and fulfilled them. Requirements, he filled many of those requirements, but also he taught and demonstrated how those requirements were to be met, how we are to view this. Now, we may not understand them all, and we not, may not be able to perform them all, but if the goal is to trust God, and we do build trust, and because we trust God, and that what he wants for us is to direct us for good, then we want to do good. We want to try. So in doing so, we move away from the revolt and rejection of his word, which can be the outcome of frustration for failing to please. In putting our trust in God and in his word, we may live lives more pleasing to God. In fact, I'm sure of it. So I'm not saying those are two completely separate things. But where we fail... Because we trust in his word and in his love, and we have built that trust, and the redeeming path provided, love will naturally grow for our God. And in the process, fulfill the first and most important commandment to love God. Trust for our God is full of grace. Trust of a God that is full of grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Catchy words. If I asked you to define them or what it meant, would you be able to? I'm sure probably, but I think an easy way to look at it is this. Grace is when God gives us good things that we don't deserve. As you have read in the Bible, for it is by grace you have been saved. And mercy is when he spares us from the bad things we do deserve. And you have read his mercy endures forever. Truly, God is good. So I will go back and close up the example with my wife. Put this way, if trust is our foundation of our marriage, then I guess actually the answer seems kind of easy now, maybe more straightforward than it was 10 minutes ago, that trust is the right way to go. So if I know my life loves me and I trust, loves me and I trust in that fact, then I know that if I forget something important, if I mess something up, if I leave my socks in the TV room, or I continue to breathe at night, she will still love me in the morning. Now, obviously, she's different from God. She's going to need a cup of coffee first. And I know this because I've asked her before she's had a cup of coffee, and I usually get something like, I'm thinking about it. That knowledge and trust and appreciation that this trust engenders, that I can rely on, makes loving her almost the default next step. Trust is really important in our relationships. 
So it is natural that I want to do things that please her. So I do try to write down and give myself notes or take cues from Aaron like this morning and uh, not forget the things that are important to her. I try to take my socks off in the bedroom and not the TV room. Now I do draw the line at breathing. I do breathe and I continue to breathe. But I do wear a CPAP. And let me tell you, nothing screams wow, desire, like a CPAP mask. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, trust in God. The people of the time when this was written were no different than we are today. We have exactly the same weaknesses and refusal to acknowledge those weaknesses. Those weaknesses. Same thing that they did back then. It's just expressed differently. Our issues are different. And here is where we get to the walk part, the next question. In our Brit Kaddishah, Brit Kaddishah readings today, how we walk is highlighted. In 1 John 1, 6 through 7, it says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, remember I said this goes all the way back to Genesis, and I think this is kind of an interesting uh, point. I have to say that up front so you think it's interesting, but anyway. So we go back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had a bite of the apple, and they're hiding because they hear God moving in the garden. And God asks what I thought, even as a child, is an odd question. In Genesis 3.9, where are you? God, who created everything, knows even the hairs on Adam's head, is asking Adam where he is. So it seemed odd to me that God would be asking Adam physically, where is he located? And this comes to the definition of walking and then comes back to Leviticus, I promise. And Adam's answer, I think, sort of reflects this idea that he knows God is not asking where he physically is. Because his answer isn't, here I am. His answer is, and we read this in verse 10, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. The answer reflects, I think, Adam's um, understanding that God knows where he is physically, and I think seems to understand that God is asking why Adam is not walking with him. What has changed? Adam's answer makes more sense because he explains the what and the why in it. Now, I don't want to run down a rabbit trail here, and I won't, but I did take a close look at this idea of walking. And the form that's used in Genesis back then is the same that's used in Leviticus. In 26.12, I will walk among you. It's not a form that necessarily needs to be interpreted as I walk, physically walk, I am walking. It is a singular activity, what I do. There is also one that reads, it's a mutual action, walking as a shared action, something you do with someone else. So when God asks the question, where are you, a verse that we typically, I think, sort of flow past, at least I kind of always did, it's like, okay, Adam hid, 
where are you? I don't know why God would ask that, but I never really gave it a lot of thought until this scriptures this uh, week when I was going to give the message. But the question really asks, where are you, is it's highlighting that something is broken. Adam is not with God. The question is a tragic one. In it is reflected a relationship changed. Separation of which both are acutely aware. Where are you? Why are you not with me? Now back in Leviticus, God has given us a way to walk again with him. In verses 26-3 we read, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then he will provide. And again, if we do all these things laid out, as in verse 12 tells us, I will walk among you and be your God. This is a relationship, one that we are building today. And you shall be my people, walking as a relationship. This relationship, this relationship that was broken, as I said, in Genesis, and then promised to be rebuilt to the ancients, is now being nurtured, so to speak, as we practice our faith today and know a way to walk with God. This path has been offered. So now, with this understanding of walking, let's look at 26.3 again. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, and remember, a commandment is an overarching direction, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, or murder, whereas um, that's a commandment, whereas a statute expands on that. It usually gives it more specificity. So walking in God's statutes is to walk in a shared now understanding, in a shared relationship with these statues and thus with God. And it's this, unfortunately, that became somewhat, not meant to be, but something that separated us from God through the process of legalism, which I go back to now if you use the basis of pleasing God. The statues were not the problem at how they were performed or why they were performed as they drifted, drifted away from the relational walking, walk in my statutes, and now made them performance-based to lead to legalism. In this way, they're not wrong. The statutes are not wrong, but just wrongly viewed, which is what made them a stumbling block. It's a nice tune. I always like to point it out because I love embarrassing people when I get a chance. There we go. <laughs> it's one of the high points of my day. Okay. A stumbling block. We're back on that. And it took Yeshua to bring us back to the relational. They were meant to help us to walk with the goal of a relationship. In any case, this is important, this correct understanding this correct perspective of God's direction to us and how we walk with him in this shared relationship. So how do we do this? Well, teachers, rabbis, mentors, all this can help us. 
but we need to understand the scriptures for ourselves because it's a personal relationship with God as well as a societal or people relationship with God. And we each have that responsibility. So this is why reading the portions for yourself is so important. And this week, I'll admit, this week was kind of difficult. Uh, a few days ago, when I knew I was going to be given this message, I sat down and read through them, and I had to read through them quite a few times. The admonition to walk in my statutes is a personal one, as I said, for each of us. We need to study Scripture to know what that means. And I promise you, if you spend time in doing that, you'll be blessed and you will be wiser than you were. Now, there are ways to approach this, studying Scripture, but I decided to give you six quick steps of at least how I sort of approach it that may be of help. And the first step is diligence. And this is what I pulled out of the earlier scriptures, having time off to feed yourself in the scriptures. Diligence is to set aside a time to delve into the scriptures, if not once a day, once a week, even if it's just to familiarize yourself with the portion. Just pick a periodicity that works for you and make it part of your life. Two is to struggle, which may be something that doesn't come quickly to mind, but I actually enjoy this part. Don't skip over the difficult stuff. Spend some time and struggle with it. There may be where you reap the most benefit. Now, if you're struggling, accept the fact, number three, that you're going to make mistakes, and you will. If you try to do something hard in your life, no matter what it is, you're going to make mistakes. Share your opinion with someone else. Read further. Ask mentors. If you're pressing yourself, like I said, you will make mistakes. But sharing them gets examined by many people, and we all benefit from that. So mistakes are okay. Sometimes people read the scriptures, and I think they think that they have to always have it right, perfect. It's okay. Read the hard stuff. If you make a mistake, you make a mistake. You share it with people, and you'll learn. And other people will learn with you. It's a blessing, almost. Yeah. I guess I would call it a blessing to make a mistake. Then evaluate, number four. Does what you read or does what you think or this process you came along, does it make sense? Or does it present an apparent contradiction to be addressed? Ask others. Many of the people who run into a contradiction and go, well, that's it, Bible's not true. It's not that the Bible is untrue. It's this that we don't understand. We don't understand what it means. I've always said that if someone that you absolutely trust always tells you the truth, comes up and tells you that this is a foot long, and you look at it and go, no, nah, it's not. I don't know, what is that, five inches? Five inches long. But you know the other person doesn't lie. But he's saying it's a foot long. To me, the obvious question isn't, you're wrong, you're lying to me. To me, the question is, what's your ruler? What am I misunderstanding? And maybe when I see their ruler, it will make sense why they give this message. I'm the same way with scripture. If the scripture says something, and I don't know if it's science or somebody else or someone I respect, and they say, no, nah, it didn't make any sense. I don't go, well, the Bible's wrong. Thump it. I go, what am I not understanding? And that's the struggle. It's fun. It's rewarding. The fifth step is relevance, and I 
talked about that a little earlier. That's exactly what we want to do. These are not dusty words to highlight something that was needed in the past, applied to a people long ago. Their circumstances were different, like I said, but their drives were the same. So I always endeavor, even today, this is my endeavor today, is to make what we read in the past, which might seem to be only about farming, relevant today. It's not only about farming. And then share it. Don't keep what you found to yourself. God's light shines through us and is not, as you know, meant to be kept under a bushel. Example is the strongest and most convincing way to share our faith with others. Walk the walk. Which brings me really to a final sort of a, get to a wrap-up point. All of this, all I've talked about so far is far-ranging subject matter. A lot of stuff is covered in this portion. The rewards or the results of choosing to walk or not walk with God. The theme through all of this is building a relationship based on trust in God's rightness, goodness, and care for us. The trust in the way to salvation provided through Yeshua's atoning sacrifice. The same trust that was shown when the Israelites placed blood, the blood of the lamb on their doorpost that death would pass them over. All of it, at its core, is the direction to walk with God, a shared relationship, to follow, to keep, to do, in a trusting, within a trusting relationship. And our ability to do this is based on an honest and self-evaluation of our personal moral compass, and then a measure of our personal moral bravery. We develop that compass through our study, through our discussions, working with mentors. But if we don't, and I'm not saying ever saying that study is not a good thing, but if we don't understand the relevance, then we render it kind of impotent. So we need to develop a strong, well-thought-out, biblically correct, in accordance with God's commandments and statutes, a moral compass from these studies that guide our way. And once you have that and know the right path to walk, equally important is the moral bravery to walk it. And this part is the critical part. And this is the part that I struggle with, and I believe, I won't talk for anyone else, but I believe many struggle with. We know what is right, we know when something is doing wrong, and we remain silent or we just let it go. It's that moral bravery that makes the difference, to walk the walk in a relationship with God. And do not fool yourself. When your moral compass points in a direction that will cost you personally, maybe your loved ones too, you will get a measure on the strength you truly possess. And I pray that when that time comes, we will all persevere. But it is hard, and God is with us in this, and he understands the challenge. You know, this is not part of the readings, but if you read Psalms 119, the whole chapter, I think it demonstrates to us that God understands the difficulty of this. And maybe this would be helpful if you did read that, not just today, but anytime you start feeling overcome. But I, I read, I'll just pull out a couple of the verses, 57 through 64, and I think you'll hear it echoed. My portion is Hashem. I have pledged to keep your words. 
I pleaded before you with all of my heart. Favor me according to your promise. He gives us the way to salvation. I consider my ways and return my feet to your testimonies, not my own. I hastened and I did not delay to keep your commandments. A band of wicked men plundered me, but I did not forget the Torah. At midnight, I arise to thank you and your righteous ordinances. I am a friend to all who fear you and to those who keep your precepts. This is our community. Your kindness, Hashem, fills the earth. Teach me your statutes. This is someone talking about the difficulties of doing this and how this fellowship that we have here and us worshiping together helps support us. It reflects an understanding of that challenge. And it is with God and each other where strength can be found. And that's pretty much it. We end with the last verse in Leviticus 34, which I think is a nice period to all of this message. And that is, it reads as thus, these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. And we are all those children. So, I realize the scriptures and this message is a little bit difficult this week. Um, but I think it was, well, for me, <laughs> for me it was rewarding. And uh, I hope this gives you, I don't know, a reason to consider to go into the scriptures and see what they mean to you. Always look for the relevance in your life. So I think we've immersed ourselves in Torah as we prayed that we would. With that, I will end with the ironic benediction if you'd all like to stand up. And if my wife, who, if you still love me, dear, will come up. <laughs> you still thinking about it? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> and I hope to see you all over in the Oneg room. If you'll now, as you've gathered together, close your eyes and let this prayer that I just love so much wash over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant each and every one of you in your life his peace. Adonai Adonai Pnavalecha Vayasem Lecha Amor God bless you all.